The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So this morning we are studying the story of Jesus walking on water and him calming the storm out of John chapter 6. And whenever I introduced the story a couple of weeks ago, I said it is a story that draws people in by natural curiosity as well as by personal connection. By natural curiosity, we're brought in because Jesus is walking on water, and let's just admit it, uh, that doesn't happen every day, so that's interesting. And then the second piece there is we can connect with the idea of going through a storm in life. We can connect with the idea of being tired and weary and worn out and overwhelmed like what the disciples were going through. So we get that. That's where we live. That's what we experience is just a part of living in this world. There's another piece that we connect with, and that is we connect with the idea of Jesus being larger than life. In this particular story, he is walking on the waters that he made. In this particular story, he has control over the very storm that makes his disciples fearful. In the story, whenever he says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid, we believe him. It's coming from the man who just walked on the water in order to get out to where the boat was at. So it's a story that leaves you confident, and it also leaves you with comfort, regardless of maybe what it is that you're facing at that time. But it's also a story that was not written in a vacuum. It is one in which it is a part of a much broader story. As I shared two weeks ago, this is actually seen three out of four in a much bigger narrative. And we need to have all of the pieces together to be able to get the full meaning of what is intended from this particular story. So two weeks ago, I set up the first three scenes, and I gave you two key truths based on those first three scenes. In a couple of weeks, I am going to start scene number four. There is a lot in scene four, about 45 to 50 verses. So that's going to take a while to work through that. But this morning, I want to give a brief recap of what has been covered two weeks ago, make sure everybody's back up to speed, and I'm going to give you a whole group of truths that fall out of this text. These truths are truths that have the power to reshape your perspective on what's going on. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I don't know what storm you're facing. I don't know what situation you're dealing with. But these truths have the power to reshape your perspective and to give you hope. Every person needs perspective. Every person needs hope. And you get both of those in the same story this morning. If you're not already there, I invite you to join me, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, kind of hold your place there so that you can make sure you know where we're at. I'm giving the second part of the message that I started before, and that was lessons in the storm. We're going to have a word of prayer and kind of start that recap. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. God, may our minds and focus be so zeroed in on you. God, I pray this morning that you would take any distraction away, remove it from our minds, keep us focused in the moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I stated a few moments ago, The story of Jesus walking on water and him calming the storm is seen three out of four in a much bigger narrative. And the gospel writers keep these stories linked together because the events of one are illustrated in the lessons of the others. So here are the first three scenes very quickly. Scene one, Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. 
He told them to take nothing for their journey except their staff. They were not to take a bag. They were not to take money. They were not to take food. They were not even to take another change of clothes. He was building God dependence in from the very beginning and teaching them faith. If they were going to complete the mission, they were going to have to learn to depend upon him. So for him, he would be their source. He would be their strength. He would be their provider. All of that was being supplied by him. Whenever they came back after their mission, they began to tell Jesus everything they did. And it's at this particular moment Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Scene one now ends. Scene two is they are immediately met with more people and more challenges and more ministry whenever they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There was no time for rest. It was only more work. So in that day, as it continued to transpire, they found themselves among thousands of hungry people. They had no food to give them. They had no money to buy food. They had no place to purchase food, even if they had the money. And the disciples' answer to this problem was, send the crowds away. Jesus had compassion on them. He understood many of them would be weary and they would faint along the way. So he multiplies a kid's lunch. He feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children. And the people that fed and were, received the food were so amazed by what they witnessed that it says they had a clarity of moment where they knew he was the prophet who had been promised by Moses and they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. Three things happened in rapid succession at this moment. He immediately sent his disciples in a boat to Bethsaida ahead of him. He dismisses the crowd, thwarting any attempt that they might have to make him king by force. And then he goes up onto a mountain to be alone and to spend time in prayer. Scene two now comes to an end. Scene three picks up exactly where that just left off. Jesus is on the mountain. His disciples are on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. As they're out in the boat, it's now nighttime. We see that they are in a storm. The waves are crazy. The wind is pushing them further away from the shoreline out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The whole time, Jesus is watching them from a distance. They have tried for hours to get back to the, the shoreline of safety, but to no avail. So as they are straining, as they are working, they see this figure walking to them on the water. They didn't know it was Jesus. Turns out it was Jesus. So according to Mark Mark chapter 6, 48, it said he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. He was going to keep walking. Now, when they cried out in fear, Jesus said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. Peter steps out of the boat. He starts walking on the water and he takes a few steps and he sees the, the wind. He sees the waves and he begins to doubt and he sinks. Immediately, Jesus reaches out, pulls him up from the water and he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus and Peter now get in the boat and as soon as they got in, the winds stopped. And according to Matthew 14, those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. But then Mark throws out this weird little statement, chapter 6, verse 52. He said, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Scene three now comes to an end. Those are the first three scenes of the story. And I gave you two big truths two weeks ago on this. 
Let me give you those quickly again. Again, these are in no particular order, but I want to make sure everybody is back on the same page. Here's the first. The disciples' fears were calmed when they heard Jesus' voice. When Jesus came walking to them on the sea, they didn't recognize his figure. They didn't recognize his clothes. They didn't recognize his walk. They recognized his voice. That might seem like an insignificant point, but as Christians, it's entirely too easy to focus on what we see and not on what we hear. We want to think to ourselves, God, I'll be okay if I see you do something. I need you to move the mountains. I need you to silence the storms. I need to see your activity. If I see you're doing something, I'll be okay. But that misses the bigger picture. Even if you can't see his movements, the question is, are you listening for his voice? Scripture is God's word. It contains his promises, his teachings, his encouragement, as well as his correction. Are you listening to what God is currently saying to you? So our prayer is not, God, I will be okay if I see you move. Our prayer is, God, I am okay because your words already declared that to be true. Therefore, I don't have to fear the storm I see because I'm listening to the voice that I hear. I'm listening to your voice. That brought us to our second truth. The storms or pressures of life reveal our hearts. I said a crisis does not make a hero. It reveals a hero. Who you are under pressure is who you are. Now, storms, pressures, problems, they have a way of bringing to the surface things about our character we do not want to see, but we need to see. I can convince myself I am a loving, caring, unselfish person when no one is asking anything from me and when life is calm. It's easy to think, man, I'm a pretty good guy. But then let me get stressed out some, overwhelmed, anxious, tired, where it seems like everybody around me just fell out of the needy tree, hitting every branch on the way down, got lodged all up in its roots. And I find out I'm not nearly as loving, caring, and unselfish as I thought I was. I can be grouchy. Have you all ever done this before where somebody's telling you stuff and it's, it's just continued, it's continued, it's continued. And in your mind, you're thinking this whole storyline. you got this dialogue happening, but you can't let your face show it. So you're trying to keep this empathetic, compassionate look on your face. But in your head, you're thinking to yourself, stop doing dumb things. If you stop that, it'll be better. And about that time, they say something else stupid. You're like, were you born in a barn? Were you raised by wolves? Stop doing that. And in your mind, you're saying this. And all of a sudden, at that point, the Spirit of God convicts you and says, do you see what's ugly just under the surface? Problems don't even have to be really bad to bring some of these things to the light. You see, that's what storms do. They begin to bring to the surface stuff that we don't want to see, but we need to see. So in this particular storm, the disciples, remember, just the day before, had sent away or wanted to send away a tired, hungry, desperate crowd of people because they didn't want to deal with it. Now they're in the storm, and Jesus was intending on walking by them. In other words, he was going to keep going and saying, hey, guys, how does that feel when no one cares about you at your desperate point of need? 
Why don't you have any compassion? You didn't have compassion for them. Now you're desperate. How does that feel? And according to the text, it says in chapter 6, verse 52 of the Gospel of Mark, it said, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. It was a hard issue they were dealing with. So God wants his people to represent his heart. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that we have his heart. The storms of life will reveal what's going on in the heart. What is your storm telling you about your heart right now? That's where we left off the last time. Now we've got some new truths to go with. Here's the next one. Storms may be about disobedience, spiritual balance, or living in a fallen world. Now this answers a part of the why question. If you're going through a storm, I guarantee you there's going to be a moment along the way where you're saying, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? Why am I in this situation? And I can't tell you why you're in your situation. I don't know what your situation might be. But what I can tell you is that there's at least three types of storms, maybe even others, that if you at least know the types, you can pray through them to find out, is this a lead? Is this a part of why I am where I am right now? So sometimes we encounter a storm because of disobedience. Jonah, fantastic example of this. If you remember, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He did not like the Ninevites. He did not want to go there. He hated them, so he took a boat to go elsewhere. And God had a wonderful storm and a well-prepared fish waiting for him. So in that situation, his was a storm of disobedience. And when you're in one of those types of storms, it is the inevitable result of reaping what you sow. They are intended to teach us the dangers of walking outside of God's will, God's wisdom, and God's truth. It is a fulfillment of what God has promised over in Proverbs 131 when he said, when people have rejected truth and wisdom, he said, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satisfied with their own devices. In other words, he will let People feel the full result of their rebellion. That is a scary concept. When he says, I've called you back, I've called you back, I've called you back, you keep saying no, 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 he says, enjoy. You get the full result of it. So sometimes it's a storm of disobedience. Sometimes we encounter a storm because God is reestablishing spiritual balance in our life. If you obey God, or at least you try to walk faithful with God, if you serve him, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom activity around you, chances are you will be met with a level of success because God is honoring his word. God is accomplishing his will. And the danger here is of thinking because you were present when it happened and you were involved while it happened that you're the reason any of it happened. And pride creeps in. And before you know it, you switch out your identity in Christ for service for Christ. You begin to view your acceptance through the lens of your performance. And to reestablish spiritual balance, God allows us to have victories and defeats. Allows us to go through the ups as well as the downs, the good and the bad. He gives us enough victory to give us hope. He gives us enough defeat to keep us humble. 
He brings both of them together because if we're not careful, we can think we've got this thing figured out. The disciples, if you'll remember, were excited to tell everything that they had done along the way. So as they continued to tell Jesus everything that they had done, if you'll remember, they weren't saying, God, thank you for what you allowed us to do or thank you for what you've allowed us to be a part of. They were talking about what they did. They might have thought in that moment, this ministry thing's easy. All you got to do is cast out some demons. You just heal some sick people. You preach the gospel of the kingdom. We got this. All the way up to the point they drew a blank when there's thousands of hungry people staring at them. And they're like, we got nothing here. Or until they're sitting in a boat in a storm out at sea and they've been struggling all night to no avail. It's in those moments of desperation that you find out, I don't have it all together. I need God. I need his help. I, I, I need him. As the song says, I need the every hour. It's, it's in those moments that we have a fresh awareness of our desperation for God. So finally, before we get out of this point, there's also storms that you come into because it's the result of living in a fallen world. It has nothing to do with disobedience. It has nothing to do with God reestablishing spiritual balance. It has everything to do with the fact you're living in a fallen world. Sometimes you're going through a storm because of the relationships around you. And what I mean by that is when somebody you love is going through a difficult time, you go through the difficult time with them because of the nature of the relationship. When they're hurting, you hurt. When they're in trouble, you feel it. Sometimes you go through a storm because of sickness and illness. Sometimes it's about job loss. Sometimes it's just about unexpected tragedy that comes along the way where it's not a situation of you're in it because of disobedience. It's not about reestablishing spiritual balance. It's a part of living in a broken, fallen world. And when you find yourself in one of those types of storms, all I can say is don't overthink it. Look to the one who's walking on the waves. Trust him. There's something in that moment that is designed in order to take you further in your walk with God. Here's the next truth that we learn in the storm. Unless you're invited by Jesus, stay in the boat. This is a good word. This is for someone this morning. Okay, we all know Peter gets a lot of grief in the Bible. Anytime it says, and Peter, you know the entertainment just arrived. But Peter gets grief because he got out of the boat, he begins to see the wind, the waves, and he begins to doubt and he sinks. And we're like, ah, oh, Peter, you had it, man. But then the other disciples, they get grief because they're like, why can't you be like Peter? He was courageous. At least he got out of the boat. Well, I think we need to give grace to both parties. Before doing anything, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Here's the point. Peter didn't step out until Jesus said, come. He asked before he acted. Now, that might seem insignificant, but there's a lot of well-meaning Christians who are sinking in their situations right now because they have presumed upon the activity of God. They thought walking in faith is just jumping out in blind faith, doing their thing, and just trusting Jesus is going to hold them up. But that's not faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if God has not spoken, you have not heard, therefore or it is not faith, it is presumption at that point. Did you know there is nothing courageous about presuming on the activity of God? 
It's foolish to do so. So, let me make it as clear as I can. Unless he has invited you out onto the waters, keep your fanny in the boat. Okay? That's a Greek word. It means hiney. Next word. Storms expose our lack of margin and our need for rest. There is a rest theme that's happened in each of the three stories going up to this point. When the disciples reported back about everything they did, if you'll remember, it said they were so busy they didn't even have enough time to eat. And Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Busyness, rest. So then in scene number two, they arrive, but all of the ministry was waiting for them. They, they didn't get a chance to rest. They immediately were involved again in serving people, helping people, ministry needs. So they're right back into the thick of things. Then Jesus sends them away, and as they sent away, they go to Bethsaida. When he didn't show up in Bethsaida, then they decide they're going to go to Capernaum without him. So they start a journey later that evening where they were on a boat all night long, not getting any sleep, in the middle of a storm, straining at the oars, literally there's no rest in scene number three. Scene one, no rest. Scene two, no rest. Scene three, no rest. Part was of their doing. Part was of God's design. Here's my point. No one, apart from God, can accurately predict the storms that are coming in your life. We don't know what's coming around the corner. Unexpected events will set your life off balance. They will challenge you. Sickness will challenge you. Job loss challenge you. Family relationships challenge you. It, it, you don't know what's coming around the corner. And when you get challenged in those things, it begins to reveal whether or not you're already in the margins or whether or not you've got something left in the tank. All of those issues become amplified when you are tired going into your storm. Because when you're tired and you're running on empty, it affects your emotions, your relationship with God, your decision-making abilities, your focus, your fortitude, your discipline, even your perspective. Without margin and rest, we enter the storms spiritually handicapped. When you get in a storm, have you noticed how things change so fast around you? You're just trying to get your mind around it. That is not the time to say, I probably need to start spending time with God again. And when you look back and it's been three months since you spent time with him, you're in trouble at that point because you need a rock-solid relationship with God that you can pull from in that moment. When you're already overwhelmed and you're tired, that's not the time to begin to think, you know what, I need to get about a three-week breather before I deal with this. Because you don't get three weeks in that. You are in the storm at that moment. So the storm will reveal really fast where there is a lack of margin and a need for rest in your life. You'll find that in that moment, you might make bold declarations like I do. In that moment of a storm, I will say to myself, when this storm is over, I'm going to lock my calendar down. I'm going to pull back on commitments. I'm going to do some things in order to regain balance. You have to act upon that not just have good intentions to do it. You are never going to benefit from the rest you don't take. Here's the next truth. Jesus can do more in an instant than our self-effort could ever accomplish. 
The disciples had spent their entire night battling the wind and the waves in an attempt to make it back to the safety of the shoreline. But according to Matthew chapter 14, they were still a long way away from the shore. So they had battled this thing all night long to no avail. Now in verse 21, when Jesus arrived at the boat, it said, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately. (laughs) Think of it like this. Jesus did effortlessly by himself in a moment what they could not do with all of their strength collectively for an entire night. They couldn't get back to the land. The moment Jesus is there, they're at the land. And do you all remember why they were in the storm to begin with? Because Jesus told them to go to the prearranged rendezvous point of Bethsaida. They got to Bethsaida. But when Jesus didn't show up and it was evening time, they're thinking to themselves, he's not coming. We'll start without him. So they get in a boat in order to continue on their journey going over to Capernaum. They're in the boat because they were impatient. They were getting a head start on Jesus because he had taken too long. When Jesus says, wait, wait. If he says, I'm coming, he's going to be there. You're not going to get a head start on Jesus. I guarantee you of that. By the time it's done, any head start you think you got is going to be down the wrong path, and your strength will be frustrating. You'll be exhausted, and then you still have to deal with the stuff that comes from not waiting on him. Just wait for him. Here's the next truth. The storms of life will test our faith and emphasize God dependence. I am not going to spend a lot of time on this because every single part of the truths I've given has this idea of faith and God dependence already tied into it. I just want to show how this theme works through the different scenes. Back whenever he sent them out, he sent them out with nothing but his promises and his directives. They were to trust him for everything along the way. Scene number two, they began to focus on what they had, what they could see, and not depending upon God. They couldn't feed the 5,000. They didn't have enough resources for that. It was about walking by sight and not by faith for them. Then in scene number three, when Jesus invited Peter out of the boat, he began to walk. When he looked at the wind and the seas, he began to sink. And then Jesus says in that moment, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Here's the thing. All three scenes, there is a tension between faith and sight. Faith and sight. Will you trust God Or will you trust what you're seeing right now in that moment? The storms of life will test our faith and emphasize God dependence. Whenever you are facing something that you cannot control and you cannot budge and you cannot manipulate into doing what you want it to do, it forces you to depend on God. You don't have any other option. If you got an option, you're going to go with the other option first because our mind is usually, I'm going to work it out to the best of my ability, and if I can't do it, then I'll bring it to God. (laughs) The reality is we bring it to God, submit it to Him, and through Him, He begins to work out things before us. So consider this. When they were sent out way back in scene one, what they lacked never determined what they did. They had nothing But God used them in a huge way. Somewhere along the way, they had forgotten it's not about what you have. It's about who you're with. If you are walking as a disciple of Christ, that's not changed. He is with you. 
Here's the next one. God reveals himself through the storms. According to Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has already stilled the waters, the winds, while they've been out at the Sea of Galilee in another story back in those chapters. In that story, you might remember, but Jesus was asleep in the boat with them. And they are frantic, and they wake him up, and they say, Lord, don't you care if we perish? And it says that he got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. They became very afraid and said to one another, this is key, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They asked the question back in Mark chapter 4. They get their answer now in John chapter 6. As Jewish disciples, they would have known that the psalmist had spoken of God saying, only God can still the roaring seas and can rule the raging seas. Psalm 65, 7, Psalm 89, verse 9. They would have known that Job chapter 9, verse 8 tells us God alone is the one who tramples down the waves of the sea. They would have known the story of the Exodus that whenever God sent Moses back to Pharaoh and he said, who should I tell him... Who should I say sent me? And he gave the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am. That is a name, Yahweh and I am, used interchangeably in Exodus 3.14. They would have known those stories. So now in this scene, when Jesus comes walking on the sea, when he tramples down the waves, when he stills the roaring sea, who is the only one who could do that? God. When the disciples cried out in fear and Jesus said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. That middle phrase, it is I, is literally translated, I am. There are seven clear I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is a little hidden one right in the middle of those. So when they're listening to him and he says, take courage, I am. Take courage, I am. Do not fear, I am. They they understand in that moment. It's no wonder their first step is worship because they knew who it was who had stepped in. So if he walks where only God can walk and he does what only God can do and he answers to a name that only God can hold, who do you think he is? He's God. God reveals himself through the storms. I will guarantee you There are things he has revealed to you about himself in the storms that you would have never picked up at another time. You know what you know about God because you went through what you went through with God. If he didn't reveal himself in those times, we walk away many times with statements on a page that have never become personalized into our lives. So here's the last one. This is a good place to end. Problems or peace Worship is the only appropriate response to Jesus. Problems or peace. When you see the gospel records, you see the wise men fell on their face and worshiped at his birth back in Matthew 2. A Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed bowed in worship in Matthew chapter 15. 
A blind man who had been healed by Jesus bowed in worship in John chapter 9. The woman who, who was with him, women who came to the tomb at his resurrection, they worshipped him, Matthew 28. Thomas worshipped him, John chapter 20. The rest of the 11 disciples worshipped him, Matthew chapter 28. Although this moment was surprising for them and shocking for them, they did the only appropriate thing to do. They worshipped him. When you worship God in the storm, that is something the world will never recognize. When you praise God and you say God is good and everything in your life is going well, people expect that. In fact, you remember in the story of Job that God had spoken to Satan and he had said, have you considered my servant Job upright man? Righteous in all of his ways. And you'll find that Satan's response was, he praises you because you've blessed him. Take away his blessings and he will curse you to your face. Satan was making the connection here between those who are blessed, it's natural to worship him. But if you take away their blessings, they'll stop worshiping. That's the same mentality the world has today. When there is someone that all hell is breaking loose around them, and they still praise Jesus, they still glorify Jesus, they are still leaning into Jesus, the world has no answer for that because that's not religion. That's not normal. There's nothing that would tell them to do that. That is what it means when we talk about walking by faith and not by sight because Jesus is just as glorious in the boat when the wind stopped as he was on the mountain when he was praying by himself. His glory had not changed along the way. So we either get a chance to worship him in the storm when no one would understand, but we need to worship him there. Or we can wait and say, God, when you deal with this, then I'll worship you. That is trying to worship based on his actions, not based on his character. Praise God. We get a chance to worship him for his actions and his character all the time. But the only approach response is worship just worship you say I don't feel like worshiping that's not the issue he deserves our worship well I can't see him do anything that's not the issue we already have more in our life than we could ever say thanks for right now the issue is will you worship him it is the only appropriate response in the presence of Christ so what lessons is God teaching you in your storms right now I just want to encourage you, don't just exist in your storm. Don't just complain your way through the storm. Don't just pray, God, get me out of the storm as quick as you can. Learn in your storm. Grow close to him in your storm. Let your storm naturally drive you to your knees in dependence in the place that we're supposed to be all the time. Don't waste your storm. The circumstances of your life right now, and I know this is a broad statement, but I guarantee it's biblical. The circumstances of your life right now are perfectly designed by a loving Heavenly Father for your sanctification and for his glory. Don't waste your storm. There's too much good that can come from this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for the fact that we can praise you in the storm, before the storm, after the storm. God, we can constantly praise you. Lord, we, we need to remember that. Because in that moment, our perspective is so caught in the problem that we can't look above the problem sometimes in order to see that you are the answer. And God, mentally, we know you're the answer. But sometimes we're trying to figure out any and everything else in order to solve it ourselves. But God, you can do more in a moment than we can through all of our self-effort put together. God, thank you. Thank you for the fact you didn't create us and leave us. God, you created us and you lovingly bring us along step by step by step to live a life of human flourishing. To live in a place in which we can without a doubt say that you have blessed in unbelievable ways. Thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand?